Hello and welcome to Shakespeare at the NT, the 21st century. So as I'm sure you're aware, this is part of the Shakespeare 400 celebrations. And tonight at 6pm, Dominic Cook and Ben Power are going to be talking about the new television series, The Hollow Crown. So if you're able to come along to that, please do. Um, I'm Abigail Rokerson-Woodall, and I'm delighted today to be talking to Nicholas Heitner, who, as I'm sure you're aware, was the artistic director of the National Theatre for 12 years. And during his time at the NT, Nick directed seven Shakespeare plays, Henry V, Henry IV, parts one and two, Much Ado About Nothing, Hamlet, Timon of Athens, and Othello. Um, I've recently finished writing a book about Nick's Shakespeare work for Arden Bloomsbury, um, but today we're going to focus predominantly on Nick's uh, NT productions. But I'm just going to start by asking him a bit about his formative experiences of Shakespeare and some of his Shakespeare before coming to the National. So, Nick, you've credited your parents and your school, Manchester Grammar School, with introducing you to Shakespeare. I just wonder what early experiences you particularly recall and the sort of impact they had. I remember, the, I remember it all vividly because it had a huge impact. The first one I saw was a touring production, a, a tour of a famous production of the Comedy of Errors, an RSC Comedy of Errors, that came to the Opera House Manchester. Uh, uh, it was a, a production, I later found out, heavily influenced by Commedia, um, by the director Clifford Williams. And I genuinely found it funny. Um, as I found, uh, probably a couple of years later, a production of The Merry Wives of Windsor, I particularly remember Ian Richardson as, um, as Ford, uh, giving the most hilarious and wonderful performance in, in the best scene in that play when he comes in disguise to Falstaff mm. and, um, and tries to hire Falstaff um, uh, in disguise uh, to, uh, to, cuckold, to, to cuckold himself, Ford. Um, and I remember Ian, who later came here um, to play Sir Epicure Mammon in The Alchemist, and was never really interested in talking about um, what he'd done in the past. He was much, much more interested in watching Simon Russell Beale and Alex Jennings do what he used to do when he was playing those, those, um, those big leading parts. He changed colour. He kind of went through all colours of the rainbow as Ford, as Falstaff started to boast about the fact that he was visiting the wife of um, Master Ford that very afternoon to have his way with her. Um, and I think what I realize in retrospect from that is that um, Shakespeare only ever really happens when actors take control of him. Actually, The Merry Wives of Windsor on the page is flat as a pancake. There's not that much there. But, a but I think Shakespeare always knows right through his career that he can, he can if he needs to, Give an actor a sketch, and the actor will fill in the rest. That partly, 
you know that from this huge array of minor characters, 10, 12, 15 lines. But mysteriously, they're always very vivid on stage because it's an actor writing for other actors. And you, I remember being particularly well, quite surprised when you told me that you hadn't um, studied Shakespeare at school until A-level and that you had predominantly yeah. encountered him through well, through, through performance. Yeah, absolutely so, because I started to go, I'd not encountered him. He wasn't studied. Um, at the time, I, I, I probably, probably there was a degree of... of um, of intellectual snobbery involved, but that we we didn't we were forbidden from it was on the curriculum. There was no provision for studying English literature. We did English language O level, and we were told that the English literature O level um, was um, was uh, a, a very poor exam and not worth taking. Um, <laughs> uh, so, but we were taken to Stratford all the time. Very, very active dramatic society, and we were taking, you know, it, it, school trips were were much, much easier those days. Um, in those days, you just they you, they just bundled you onto a bus with a couple of teachers, and 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 then you arrived in Stratford and and marauded a bit, and then saw the play, and then came back, and there were there, were, there was there were no forms to fill, so it was all much easier. Um, so it saw a lot of Shakespeare, and I went. Uh, for a weekend every year with my parents to Stratford, saw three plays in a weekend. Um, so the first, yeah, the first time I studied him was for A-level, by which time I was completely fanatical about him. And I really rather wished we'd done English O-level, but we were told, no, 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 that's for drones. We don't do that at this good. <laughs> so um, after you left Cambridge, where you also studied English literature, mm. you, your first professional Shakespeare production was As You Like It yeah. at Manchester Royal Exchange. Um, you did an interview at the time saying that you didn't really see any difference between directing classical and modern work. Yeah. Um, and I just wondered whether that was something that still kind of held, held true for you. Well, I think probably most directors would say that they want to approach a great play of the past, as if it was a new play, there's a big difference between directing a great play by a dead writer and a play for the first time by a writer who's sitting in the room with you. Obvious, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's an obvious difference. But um, trying, trying to make uh, these plays new every time is, I think, what everybody who gets in the, involved in the performance of them does um, almost without thinking. And the the setting for for as you like it was was sort of non-specific but modern, wasn't it? Sort of loosely modern, not a particular time period. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have. I'm not that great on those. I I, I might. I I just don't remember the thinking very well. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't remember the thinking very well of the three Shakespeare's that I did for the RSC in the mm -hmm. late 80s. Um, Measure for Measure, King Lear and The, t and the Tempest. Um, I can kind of remember what they felt like. I can remember a mindset um, that I probably adopted at that time. Um, and... I don't remember the As You Like It very well. I remember the RSC shows being a lot too operatic, um, big, monumental. Um, and certainly the way 
I've responded to Shakespeare has quite often been in reaction against the way I responded to him last time. Uh, the RSC shows... I do remember Janet McTeer playing Rosalind mm -hmm. uh, in Manchester. And I, you would, if you didn't see it, I'm sure none of you did, be able to imagine how good she was. Um, she answers to every single description on the team. Um, she was wonderful. It was also wonderful being able to do as you like it in the round and to pull the audience into the Forest of Arden. Um, I suspect the thinking wasn't very rigorous. I think I, was, I think I thought harder at the RSC, but was offering operatic commentaries on the plays rather than, rather than um, getting under their skins, I suspect. Although John Wood, who played Lear and Prospero, and actually a lot of uh, the entire cast of Lear, amazing cast, Ray Fiennes as Edmund, Linus Roach as Edgar, um, Sally Dexter as Goneril, Alex Kingston as Cordelia, Estelle Kohler as, um, Estelle Kohler as Goneril, Sally Dexter as Regan, um, Norman Rodway as Gloucester. Really, really wonderful Shakespearean actors. Um, they got under its skin. Uh, I find Leah, this is apropos because, because one of the great struggles I have always is with... Um, something real in what the audience expects of Shakespeare, which repeatedly I find myself unable to find. And that is what I might characterize as, if I was feeling uncharitable, as sentimentality, but which, which is more, I think, an element of the numinous, of the divine. Leah is a very, very tricky play, one that I, I find now hard to watch. It, it loses me midway through, I have to say. I, I, I still don't quite know what he's up to um, in Act 3 when Leah is thrown out onto the heath. And I don't entirely know what he's up to when Leah loses his mind. Um, but the audience seems to know what he's up to when... Um, he's reconciled with Cordelia. Uh, but all I can see is a man who has learned nothing. Um, he wants to spend the rest of his life like a bird in the cage with Cordelia, and you think that was the problem at the beginning of Act One. She was refusing to be in that cage with you. She doesn't want to be your little bird. And I find her maybe ill-advised in Act One. And I find Gonril and Regan um, completely understandable in Act One. And I find both of them understandable until they get really nasty. Um, but, uh, I mean, you know, I, I, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to sympathise um, with, um, with a woman who's part of, um, of a, an act of terrible brutality like stamping some poor old man's eyes out. But it's... It is hard not to see where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. It is hard not to think, just stop it with those nights already. Mm -hmm. um, uh, behave. Behave, you stupid old man. Um, 
But obviously, you go through it with him and he suffers so greatly and he learns enough about the world. He seems, he seems at least in the middle of the play to start to empathize um, with people about whom you imagine, you know, the poor naked wretches, he's never, he's never had a second thought. But at the end of the play, he still wants her to live entirely through him. And I find that so depressing. I don't find it, I don't find it elevating the way I find Hamlet elevating. I don't understand. I think the point is you don't particularly understand the truth that Hamlet has discovered by the end of the play. But you know that on your behalf, he's gone to some place where he has greater understanding and greater human empathy. But I don't find that about Leah. So I find Leah a brutal, brutal play. Um, and, uh, and yet, it is absolutely undeniable that, the that over four centuries, the audience has looked to be deeply moved by that reconciliation. There is something true there, or it wouldn't have happened to so many audiences for so many centuries. Um, and I can never, there are plays where I can't solve that conundrum. I don't, I think he's a harder, less sentimental playwright than um, the playwright which I also, because I've sat in enough audiences, um, I, I, I also think audiences want and expect. And that's, it's, it's that fault line that I find constantly fascinating and constantly brings me mm -hmm. back. That kind of um, truth, I suppose, that you, that you talk about in, in King Lear, some of those early productions that you did were quite abstract. And it feels yeah. coming to these productions that you directed at the National Theatre, yeah. they seem to, be, to have all been grounded in quite a concrete reality. Yeah, um, I think that's where, that's where I came. And I would say everything, everything I say I could qualify and I, I and not, not just qualify, I could point to brilliant, insightful, beautiful productions which have gone in exactly the opposite direction. Um, so there is nothing that I can, I'm going to say this afternoon which, is, which, which has any element of Shakespeare should be, Shakespeare is better when, why don't people realise that? Mm -hmm. I can't go there anymore. Um, I can't, I, I have seen these plays respond to such different approaches um, that I can't be prescriptive um, about it. But yeah, The Winter's Tale, which was the first Shakespeare at, at the National, was kind of, I came bouncing like a pinball of a production, the only production I did um, of Shakespeare, uh, it, it, not in this country. I did a production of Twelfth Night at Lincoln Center Theatre uh, in New York, where was so beautifully designed by Bob Crowley. But I think what I'd done was I had homed in on, um, on the way, bluntly, Orsino, the Duke, looks at the world. Uh, a high fantastical world, um, canopied with sweet beds of flowers. I thought this is, um, this is a laboratory, a sweet-centred, sweet um, self-indulgent laboratory for 
the discovery of um, what love is, what love means. Obviously, you know, uh, it, it, it doesn't take um, it, 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 it doesn't take um, an enormous amount of insight to, to realize that uh, Orsino, whose world is high fantastical, um, is utterly narcissistic about his approach to um, romantic relationship with a, with another, um, and that um, Viola thinks about it a lot more deeply. But what I did was get, I think, probably absurdly hung up on Illyria um, as an exotic, invented stage world. Um, it was still incredibly moving at the end. There's a famous and wonderful moment at the end of Twelfth Night when the two twins, the male and female twin, come together, see each other. They thought each other dead. They realize each other alive. It's one of those wonderful scenes of restoration that you get um, at the end of some of Shakespeare's romantic comedies and all of the, at the end of all of his great plays, where they finally prove to each other that they are who they are. I can't remember which one of them, which twin says to which, my father had a mole upon his brow. Um, and so had mine. And it moves me even as I say it. Died that day when Viola from her birth had numbered... 16 years? 16 years, yeah, 14. maybe. Is that 14 years, something 14. like that? Um, it, um, is it Sebastian who says, my father had a mole upon his brow? That's, that's my favourite Shakespeare. Yeah. My favourite Shakespeare is the one that notices that, that is about the mole on the brow. You, he sets up this extraordinary emblematic reconciliation the yin and the yang, the male and the female, the two halves may, being made whole, but actually it's about a zit. Um, and I love that. I love it. And I thought, I've undermined that by, <laughs> make it, by making them all so beautiful. So come to The Winter's Tale. And The Winter's Tale is such an interesting play. But it's, my God, the first half of it in particular is so vile. Um, and I thought, I, I see nothing, I see no problem here. Knowing that I didn't like what I just did with Twelfth Night, but I don't see no problem here. I, these, are, these are people in early Middle Age as I was then. The actors that I'm going to work with are going to be actors who I know very well, who are all of them also in early Middle Age. Mm -hmm. All of them either parents of young children or about to be parents. Alex Jennings, Claire Skinner, Julian Wadham. Uh, so these are like us. And what's so difficult about a man going instantly crazy with jealousy? Jealousy, that seems to me how jealousy works. It's irrational. It is bonkers. It's crazy and utterly destructive. And what more concrete and more recognizable than a woman? And I think that, you know, everybody's experience of that play is, oh, my God, Paulina is the best part. It is. It is. Do you know, and I know why. It's because... She stands for us. She is us. There's very, you know, there are very few people who haven't watched their friends, even their friends' marriages, fall apart, usually because the man, the husband, is behaving with pig-headed brutality. You just want to, as you, you, you in, in life, you want to shake the people you know sometimes and say, don't you know what's good for you? And that is what Paulina does to Leontes. And she's speaking for us. I thought the first half of this play, yes, yeah, sure, there's an oracle at Delphi. I don't care about that. The audience will buy that. It's, you know, and I think it is yeah. worth saying. You're always asking the audience to buy something. 
Um, if you invent a world where the oracle at Delphi um, is a reality, you're asking them to buy the fact that these are people that, they, that, that, that are worth being interested in, that are like people that they know. There's a, there's a, there's a deal that you have to make from one direction or another. Um, you have to, in some way or other, create a stage reality which is a version of literal truth. You have to negotiate the gap between the two. There's always a gap. Um, and I think the first half of The Winter's Tale, the marriage falling apart, it worked. It was easy to buy the first act as Leontes falls apart. Then, of course, Leontes turns out to be an absolute monarch with power over life and death who is capable, who has the power to imprison his wife and put her on trial for her life. And I thought, actually, that was a stretch. Even in 16, you'll know the, you'll know the year, 8, 16, 9? Yeah, that you would, nine, yeah. You would have had 69, you would have had to be at least 70 um, to, have rem to remember a time when a king of England had, had the power to chuck his wife in jail and put her on trial for a life for adultery. So why not just ask the audience to go with that? Um, and I thought at the end too, at the end of The Winter's Tale, it was a totally, if you saw it or remember, it was a completely contemporary production in which I thought the magic will come from the people, from what happens. A miracle is supposed to happen at the end of The Winter's Tale. It's not a miracle. It's a scam. It's a, it is a scam. It's, 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 um, it's a scheme cooked up over 16 years, 14 years, by Hermione and Paulina. And famously, the first thing that happens, the first thing he says, well, I mean, famously also, um, when she presents the statue... Leontes says, I'm going to forget the line. Oh, God, it's a bit wrinkled. And Paulina has to say, yeah, 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 well, because there's such a brilliant, brilliant sculptor that he's sculpting her as she would be now. But it's a yeah. scam. It is Hermione. And when she comes to life, oh, she's warm. Amazing line. A devastating line, says Leontes. She's flesh and blood. She's real. So what I did with The Winter's Tale was do it totally, totally real. Did I miss out a huge element of the play? You bet I did. And I'll tell you how I recovered that. Um, three, four years ago, um, my great friend Christopher Wielden, who is the most wonderful uh, contemporary classical choreographer, works at the Royal Ballet a lot, said there hasn't been a, um, a full-length Shakespeare ballet at the Royal Ballet since Kenneth McMillan's Romeo and Juliet. D which play should I do? I said, oh, I think you should do The Winter's Tale. I said kind of almost as quickly and spontaneously <laughs> as that. But I was right, and he did. And it is because it's ballet, because they're obviously not talking to each other the way we talk to each other, because they're communicating to each other in a completely um, uh, invented magical language. It gets exactly, it throbs with the divine, with the numinous in a way that my show didn't. And I thought, well, it was my idea for him to do it, so I've done that one too. So, <laughs> so, 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 but I, so yeah, so it was, half, it was half the play, The Winter's Tale, but I think half's pretty good. I'm not sure you ever get more than half. <laughs> so your first um, Shakespeare as artistic director was, mm. was Henry V, and this was a particularly topical choice, and it turned out to be even more so than mm. you possibly could have known when you... When he programmed... No, I didn't know. Well, yeah, Henry, yes, you're right. Henry V opened. It was a cont contemporary production. Adrian Lester played the king. It opened within weeks, within, um, you know, within, uh, I think, four, three or four weeks 
of, of the um, Iraq war. But it wasn't that, it wasn't that um, uh, prophetical, prophetic. Uh, decided to do it, yeah, maybe early in 2002. We were already, our British troops were already involved in um, a, a war against the Taliban in, yes. in, in Afghanistan, which, by the way, for what it's worth, I thought at the time justifiable. So I didn't go into it thinking um, we'd do this play, turn it into a great anti-war track. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't, I, like most of us at the time, didn't see an alternative to, um, to attacking the Taliban. Um, as the year went, as the year went by, and I think, again, who, was I alone? No, plainly I wasn't alone. Um, millions of people saw which way the wind was blowing, could see that we were being prepared by a great deal of, of um, spin um, for a war against Iraq. Um, it, there was, it, 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 you would have had to be an idiot not to say, well, we're doing Henry V, so we better do it as if it was written yesterday. Yeah. And then what does it turn into? As Shakespeare always turns into some dialogue with today, it turned into uh, a play about um, a, a British leader um, leading a country to war um, with questionable grounds in international law. Um, and you became aware, we all became aware as we were rehearsing it, how much energy the king puts into the presentation of his case for war, into the presentation of the progress of the war. So it was, um, it was the most vivid example um, I've ever had of one of Shakespeare's plays uh, genuinely seeming as if it was red hot off the press. It was very exciting. Mm -hmm. There was one other reason for doing Henry V, um, which had nothing to do at all with, um, with either the war, our situation um, as a country, um, although that was very important. Here I was starting at the National Theatre, um, very possessed by the idea that one of the things the National Theatre has to do is examine what it means to be national and what, what a theatre is. Um, so a big national play... Uh, by Shakespeare, felt like the obvious, the only way to start. Um, I wouldn't have done it. I, I'd, I'd known Adrian, never worked with him. I, I knew Adrian from 1991. I saw him for the first time playing Rosalind in this just mind-bendingly um, wonderful production of As You Like It by Declan Donnellan for Cheek by Jowl. And Adrian looks, sounds feels like a war leader. He has that kind of charisma. Extraordinary voice, great intellect and facility with the language, but he also has a feline delicacy, and which you saw when he played Rosalind, this tall, beautiful man with a kind of real, a, a, a real kind of witty femininity as well. I thought that would be great, wouldn't it, Henry V? So we've got to have him. But mm -hmm. the other thing was... We were starting again in the Olivier, taking all the scenery away. £10 ticket, first £10 ticket show. You know, a guy comes on at the beginning of the play and says, um, peace out our imperfections with your thoughts. Um, you know, he says, um, he says, how difficult, is it, is it possible to, um, 
to imagine the vasty field of France, vasty fields of France, and the very casks that did affright the Agincourt on this empty stage, in this wooden oak. Well, it's not wooden oak, it's concreto, but the answer is, yeah, it's possible. Yeah. We'd do it without scenery. So that, there were all yeah. sorts of reasons for doing that play. And then two years later, you did um, Henry IV parts mm. one and two. And again, the timing was perfect because it opened on the, um, the eve of the general election. But yeah. you didn't choose to do that as a contemporary setting. You choose, chose more of a sort of pseudo-medieval setting for that. Yeah, I wonder whether I was, was right, that? actually. I wonder whether I was right. You know, again, bouncing mm. off Henry yeah. V, thinking, well, there was a Henry V that we didn't do. I thought we were doing a much more ambivalent production mm -hmm. than we were. And what I'd underestimated was, bluntly, how furious the audience were with Tony Blair. Yeah. And they were absolutely determined to read their dismay at Tony Blair onto Henry V. Mm -hmm. And as much as I insisted, actually, it's still a play about Henry V who attacked France and won the Battle of Agincourt. No, nobody was really going with that. They was, no, 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 it's, it's a play about a British war leader who took us into a war in Iraq with, with and, 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 cook, and cooked up a case in international law, which is exactly what the king does. He gets the Archbishop of Canterbury to, him, to do it for him. Uh, Blair got Alistair Campbell to do it for him. And, um, uh, but that's what they want, that's, that's what they saw. Um, Adrian was, you know, Adrian was um, <laughs> a lot more persuasive and, um, and, uh, and attractive than Blair felt at the time. So it did have a degree of ambivalence. But, um, uh, uh, but coming into the two Henry, the fourth plays, I thought, no, these are not, these do not have contemporary concerns. They're about the fear of civil war. They're about hereditary monarchy. They're about the, the, the fraughtness of hereditary succession. Um, I couldn't see... I thought the dialogue between those plays and us was better negotiated from a version, it was by God, by no means a, a, a literal representation of either. It was very, actually, funny enough, it, it, was, um, it was less medieval than Elizabethan because mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's, it is, it, it, it's, it's not disputed that, that he didn't really do antique in that way, Shakespeare. Yes, he yeah. would write about, you know, the, 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 the streets of London are the Elizabethan streets mm -hmm. of London. In, um, there's no doubt about that in... Um, in um, in the Henry IV plays. Um, it had a huge amount to say about late Elizabethan England, had a huge amount to say about our England and us. I thought, actually, this time let's do the conversation from, let's make, let's make the negotiation from a version, a stage, an invented theatrical image of an old world. Actually, in retrospect, I think I think it would have been better bolder, right? And honestly, so. and then you moved to your next Shakespeare was much to do about nothing yeah. in in two thousand and seven. Yeah, um, this production to an extent revolved around Zoe Wanamaker and and Simon Russell mm -hmm. Beale as as Beatrice and Benedict, but. 
they were quite unusual casting because of their age. Did mm. you did you think that that the play would work particularly well with a slightly older Beatrice and, and Benedict? Yeah, I and did. And I, well, God, I'm not the first to have done that. No. Um, it been done before and been done since. Um, you know, first thing to be said is that there are two couples. Uh, Beatrice and Benedict are the more interesting one. The thing I thought was, I got very taken by, not my insight, not by any means my insight. It's very, very hard to have insights into these plays that nobody's had before. The ones that nobody's had before happen spontaneously in the rehearsal room because they happen um, at, an, at an almost unconscious level when actors get to say the lines. Remind me, there is a perfect example of that in, in, in Hamlet, which happened next. Um, I thought it's much ado about noting. That's the pun. Noting no thing. Um, it's, it's a pun that works three times over. And uh, believe me, I'm not the person to have discovered this. Nothing as in not much, you know, they, may, they make a huge fuss about nothing. Nothing as in slang for vagina, no thing. Um, that's, that, you know, that, that, he, that was one of the Elizabethan slang words for vagina. So much ado about, about men chasing sex. And much the most interesting, much ado about noting, about looking and about not looking. And there's a glamorous young couple who don't bother to look at each other carefully enough. They don't note. And they're, they're the, 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 the boy's friends, Claudio's friends, and the girl's family, they don't look closely enough either. They can't see that, this, that, 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 that bad people are conning them into thinking, or is conning Claudio into thinking that Hero is unfaithful. Even Hero's father turns on her. But there are two people who they've been round the block, and that was what was so important to me. And maybe this was just the, the inevitable solipsism you bring when, all of us, when we read anything. And if you direct Shakespeare, it's no different in a way from you coming to see a play and you see it from your point of view, or reading a book and you read it from your point of view. I'm looking at people my age, a bit like me, um, and I'm seeing them um, defended from the world, defending themselves from reaching out to each other. I'm imagining, because Shakespeare gives you so much room to do your imagining, even round brilliantly and fully written parts like Beatrice and Benedict, that they have a history with each other. And that what the play is inviting them to do is look really properly at each other. And there, it's no accident that you feel happier about those two getting together at the end than I think you do about any other couple in Shakespeare. Because you think they, they, know, they know each other, they've noted each other, warts and all, and actually they're now marrying because they know the worst. Not in spite of the fact that they know the worst. They know the worst about each other. Um, as often happens they're kind of tickled into seeing each other by well-meaning friends um they're kind of set up with each other but the incredibly moving scene when it, audiences can't quite get their heads around it when 
Benedict decides after Claudio has, you know, the terrible interrupted marriage where Claudio turns on Hero and everybody turns on Hero. Beatrice doesn't because Beatrice is a, she knows, she knows, she sees. And Benedict, completely against expectations, decides not to take the side of his of his comrade, his, his military comrade, his, his, his beloved Claudio, he sees the world from Beatrice's point of view. He notes the world from Beatrice's point of view. He, he notes the truth. And she asks him to kill Claudio. Big laugh always, because nobody can quite cope with it. But there's never a laugh when he says he will. Because at some level, everybody realizes, well, he's not a very good soldier. And I mean, and that's in the text. They say he's not very good. And, you know, Simon is, uh, is, um, is rotund. Um, and so you can't imagine him winning a fight against, um, against you know, uh, um, uh, a fit young man. But he says, OK, I'll, I will, I'll, if you ask me to, I will challenge him. And I will challenge him, I will challenge him, challenge him and kill him. And you think, you're not going to kill him. He's going to kill you. But that is, I find that so moving, so moving. So uh, uh, there wasn't, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, um, it's also the other thing I love about the play is it's a house party play. It's, uh, it's, 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 it has a kind of, there's very little verse in it. It has a real, that's flesh and blood, that play. And it felt like, it felt like there was, there was no need to, to the, the, actually, I'll tell you one of the reasons I didn't mess with its period is because, because it, except for that moment when you realise Benedict is prepared to risk his own life, probably lose his own life for Beatrice, the soldiering is not taken very seriously. Mm -hmm. They're kind of merry mercenaries. Um, they're, 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 um, they're, 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 fight, they're mercenaries fighting on behalf of Austria-Hungary, aren't they, in, um, in, um, uh, um, in, um, in Sicilia, in, in, in Sicily. Um, some kind of long-lost 16th-century cause. When I've seen the play done contemporary, I always feel a bit awkward that, that it's comedy soldiers. I don't, I, don't, I don't really go with comedy soldiers anymore. It reminds me of Arms and the Man, my least favourite play. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, so, no, yeah. so that's why that one was the way it was. Um, you then did Hamlet in, um, in 2011, and this mm -hmm. was back to a very contemporary setting. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that really struck me about this Hamlet was that it didn't just feel contemporary. In some ways, it felt like a new play because you made some really striking decisions that I'm not sure I'd seen before. Um, Gertrude seeing the ghost in the closet and yeah, not it turned and out, it turned out denying it. I'm it sure turned it, out that that yeah. had been done before. I mean, we, we, didn't, yes. we didn't know it had been done before. Sure. But almost yes. everything has been done before, yeah. And, yeah. and Ophelia being, Ophelia being actually murdered. sort of being murdered. Yeah, no, yeah. that, I don't, I, I haven't heard of that. It, I'm sure it has. God, you know, there are, how many state theatres are there in, in Germany? A hundred yes. state theatres there, all doing Hamlet all the time. It must have happened. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what all that what what was going on there. Um, first of all, Hamlet I, 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 I was always on my bucket list. Why would it not be? But I was waiting for the actor who I knew was cleverer than me, who could help me think through it. And then Rory appeared, so Rory Kinnear appeared. So that was that was that was why it was done at that time, simply because 
Rory. I mean, this is the weird way that theatre works. If you saw it, 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 it wasn't that great a show. The Man of Mode. Um, Rory played Sir Fopling Flutter. Just, you know, it was kind of theatrical larceny. Goodbye, everybody else, as soon as he came up on the stage. thought, oh, yes, Sir Fopling Flutter, he's great at that, so we'll play Hamlet then. That would be good. <laughs> I don't know why. I just knew. I just knew. Um, uh, so, uh, and obviously it's a contemporary play. Obviously it is. How do individual decisions like that happen? Well, it's just, it, I can't remember the process, but it's, just let me start with one of those moments where an actor has a sudden mm -hmm. insight. Maybe this was sudden, maybe he thought about it. Knowing David Calday, he'd probably thought about it. But the end of, um, you know, Polonius's precepts to um, Laertes, this, uh, the, the famously, this above all, to thine own self be true, and it will follow as the night the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. But he did it as Polonius, which is all, you know, always where you have to start. He didn't do it as famous lines, quoted endlessly out of context. Um, now, I've often seen those lines played really well as if by a pompous old guy giving boring advice to his son who doesn't really know what he's talking about. That really works. But David did something complete, totally startling to me the first time he did it. When he stopped and paused, and as he said it, he remembered how untrue he, the father, had been to himself, and he didn't want his son to make the same mistake. He, it was stricken the way he did it. And in a flash, I saw that Polonius had helped Claudius kill old Hamlet. Why would he not have done? He's kept his job. He must have done. At the very least, he nodded it through. So now you have a setup where, completely modern setup, you know, you only have to look at some of the post-Soviet dictatorships where the current leader probably responsible for, you know, the radioactive polonium in the tea of the previous leader, probably mm. delivered by the head of the Secret Service, which is what Polonius is. Then that kind of um, texture coming into the world we're exploring, Gertrude has married the new leader. Are we sure that she's completely ignorant? of what happened. Mm -hmm. And I read John Updike's novel, and again, this is not new, um, Gertrude and Claudius. I mean, he wrote that novel ages ago. Uh, th that novel is about a Gertrude who's involved in the murder of her, um, of, of her first husband. So if she knows the lie and if she's living the lie, um, you then get to the speech. And Claire Higgins, unbelievably great, um, uh, Gertrude, you get to the speech where she describes um, Ophelia's death. Weird, weird, completely unlike anything else in the play. The, the, the speech about Ophelia drowning. I think, why is this so strange? She, it must be a story, it must be a lie. So Gertrude's a liar. So, okay, so if Gertrude's a liar, um, she's lying about Ophelia's death. So how did Ophelia die? Oh, well, they don't want Ophelia <laughs> yeah. around. Because yeah. Ophelia knows, is, Ophelia is apparently mad, completely out of control of what she's saying. God knows what she's going to come out with next. What has she seen? Best mm. to do away with her. 
And if Gertrude's a liar, then when she says she can't see the ghost, excuse me, really you can't see the ghost? This ghost is visible to everybody else mm -hmm. who's on the stage. At the beginning of the play, he's visible to everybody's visible to Bernardo and Francisco and all that crowd. Yeah. Why is he invisible to Gertrude? Well, she's a liar. So those things just multiply in rehearsal. Yeah. So I'm aware that we've got to um, leave a bit of time for, for yeah, questions I, I from the audience, but, long, um, <laughs> but we'll just talk a bit about um, Timon of Athens, mm -hmm. which was the um, next production in, in 2012, and um, extremely, another really contemporary mm -hmm. uh, setting. One of the things that um, I was interested in with, with this production was, was the amount um, of text that you altered. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, Timon's a kind of unfinished play. It's a sort of unsatisfactory play mm -hmm. in, in some respects. But you actually did quite a lot of rewriting, didn't you? And even finished with As You Like It, didn't you? Well, there were, I mean, yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, there's a wonderful app, Shakespeare app, where, which, which is a kind of, you know, automatic concordance. So if you want a line that says, um, I thought, oh, we, it, should, it should end ironically with a line about, about, about the whole country now um, going into liberty. So you put go liberty and out comes a line from As You <laughs> Like right. It. So actually the, the Shakespeare yeah. app was responsible for quite a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but it, you know, Town of Athens, again, not controversial, unfinished, mm. collaboration with Middleton, um, only got into the first folio by accident. Uh, and every few years, somebody reads it and thinks, oh my God, particularly at a time of financial crisis, mm -hmm. and thinks, my God, this is just the first half of this play. This really was written yesterday, and the first half, the second half is much yeah. harder. And actually, is, the first half is quite a lot by Middleton. The second half is obviously all by, a lot of it, most of it by, by Shakespeare. But you get a real, a real sense, so interesting, that... They didn't really, they didn't talk to each other enough. They were giving each other scenes that weren't quite fitting together. There's an <laughs> incredible number of loose ends. And then at some point they thought, nah, it's not really working. And they put it to one mm -hmm. side. So it's, it's just like they're throwing down a challenge. Finish this off if you dare. Yeah. Um, and so we did, we did. We, we th and, and, and we're not the first to have done so. Um, but it, 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 if you saw it, 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 it felt, it felt like, you know, a kind of howl of disgust. At the, the, the first half of the play, a very funny howl of disgust at um, a world that, whose values are completely debauched um, by greed. Um, and of course, the thing that really amused us, and it should be funny, the first half, is it, it, they, you guess that the, the company, the Kingsmen, brought in Middleton because he was really good at satire. Um, it's the poet and the painter, the artists, crawling, uh, crawling on their bellies to the money um, for patronage, for sponsorship, you know, for 3,000 pound membership. Um, it was very, very funny. And, and we had a lot of fun with that. Great. And then the last one was Othello. Yeah. Um, and Othello reunited you with Rory Kinnear and Adrian Lester yeah. again. Um, You've often worked regularly with the with the same actors, with yeah. Rory and Adrian do, and, um, do, and yeah. Alex and Simon. Um, so, 
and often the same designers. So I wonder how important that is to you to work with, with well, people. Well, you start, you start again, to... I mean, I, I have a... I mean, uh, and Debbie Findlay and, um, uh, uh, and then Olivia Vinol, who played... Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Desdemona was played the lead in the, the in Tom Stoppard's play, The Hard Problem. Um, I like actors who think very quickly. I am more responsive to an actor who can who who can change in a microsecond, who has who whose whose access to her emotion is through a kind of super sensitive response to the world and to the situation she finds herself in. I find that more stimulating than an actor who may be borrowed, but, but, I mean, the, you get the whole package with a lot of actors, so this is not a problem, but there are actors who can borrow deep, find a really truthful well of emotion, but once there, um, it can be enormously affecting and profound, the emotion they're tapping, but they can get stuck there. Now, Rory, Adrian, Olivia, Debbie, Simon, um, they are emotionally very truthful and they will plumb the depths, but they're constantly alert. They'll change in a second. And they also speak Shakespeare like it's the way they're thinking. Um, you don't have to say to them, um, what about the verse speaking? I kind of disapprove. No, I, I disapprove of nothing. Um, I disapprove of absolutely nothing. I refuse to disapprove of anything, actually, because I genuinely think it's all so challenging and all so hard. What do, what do I do? I prefer an approach to verse speaking, which is sense first. Make sense of it first. That's what I love. Um, I, what I actually love is actually uh, um, more complex than that. I love the pull, hearing the pull, not consciously, between the sense of the line and the spring underneath it. Very, very few, relatively few of Shakespeare's verse lines actually come out de-dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum. You'd, you'd get so bored with the quality of mercy is not strained. It's not how it comes out. It comes out, the quality of mercy is not strained, but you hear the spring underneath it, you go for the sense first, kind of the meter takes care of itself. Mm -hmm. And in any event, what's the proportion of prose? Much harder, um, the prose. It's about 28% prose. I love actors who are rhetorically completely in control. That's what, it's just what I love. I love all the rest as well. I love everybody. So <laughs> <laughs> Great. Join me in thanking Nick very much indeed. <laughs>